Hello and welcome to Talking Euretina, the official podcast of the European Society of Retina Specialists. I'm Jonathan McRae. In this podcast, we bring you expert discussions and interviews with leaders from the world of retina and beyond. We also keep you up to date with the latest news from the society. In this episode, we'll take a look at two very interesting papers from the pages of the official Euretina journal, Ophthalmologica. Martin Bush will be presenting his work on using microRNAs as biomarkers for retinal disease. And the panel will discuss Christina Weischeidt's paper on CO2 emissions from the ophthalmic OR. The conversation is chaired by the journal's associate editors, Patricia Uduondo from the University of Valencia, Matthias Iglicki from the University of Buenos Aires, and Andreas Ebner from St. Gallen. You can find a link to all of the papers we're discussing, by the way, in the description of this podcast. Andreas, you're very welcome to the podcast. Over to you. Yes, thank you, Jonathan. It's more the kind introduction of every one of us. Um, we will be discussing two, three papers today in this podcast. And we'll start with a paper by Martin Bush. It's on microRNA. It's very novel, innovative, and um, inspiring. So Martin, if you could kindly give us a brief overview, a summary of your paper, and then we'll ask you some questions. Yeah, thank you for your invitation and the opportunity to present our paper today. The topic is um, circulating microRNAs as biomarker for vessel-associated retinal diseases. At first, I want to give a short introduction into microRNAs. MicroRNAs are short, single-stranded, non-coding ribonucleic acids that bind to or hybridize with messenger RNA, leading to a blockade of translation or even the degradation of the messenger RNA. So microRNAs are involved in the post-transcriptional regulation of gene expression and in turn, the dysregulated microRNA expression has been associated with various diseases. And the background of our present study was that we have identified several microRNAs in human retinal microvascular endothelia cells to be differentially expressed in response to proangiogenic stimulation of the cells with VEGF in a previous in vitro study. And gene ontology analysis confirmed that these microRNAs are related to angiogenic or angiogenesis-associated processes. And the following question was how far these in vitro identified potentially angiogenesis-associated microRNAs could also be detected as cell-free circulating microRNAs in serum and vitreous samples. And if their expression varies between patients with different retinal neovascular diseases or vascular disorders and controls, and whether they could therefore represent molecular diagnostic biomarkers. So we collected serum samples from patients with neovascular AMD or atrophic AMD and proliferative and non-proliferative diabetic retinopathy and retinal vein occlusion and analyzed the microRNA expression profiles using quantitative real-time PCR. Patients with eye diseases not related to retinal vascular pathology, such as cataract, retinal detachment, dry eye disease, macular hole, epiretinal membranes, or intraocular lens dislocation were used as a control group and for data normalization in the relative expression analysis. In total, we analyzed 15 microRNAs, of which 10 microRNAs were indeed robustly and consistently detected as 
cell-free circulating microRNAs in serum samples. And comparative expression analysis revealed four microRNAs to be differentially expressed between the patient groups. Compared to the control group, two microRNAs were exclusively upregulated in proliferative diabetic retinopathy, while one microRNA was significantly elevated in serum samples from patients with neovascular AMD. And the further microRNA was upregulated in both proliferative diabetic retinopathy and neovascular AMD. So consequently, these microRNAs may represent systemic molecular serum biomarkers for angioproliferative processes in the retina, as area under the rock curve analysis revealed a relatively good diagnostic accuracy of about 0.7 to 0.8, and therefore high associations of serum levels of specific microRNAs with the respective retinal diseases. In the case of medically indicated vitrectomy, we also took a vitreous sample for the relative quantification of microRNAs. And in general, in vitreous samples, less cell-free microRNAs of our panel could be detected than in the corresponding serum samples. And we also observed a different expression pattern between serum and vitreous. In the vitreous, we found one microRNA to be significantly downregulated in the proliferative diabetic retinopathy group compared to the control group. So taken together, we could detect several previously in vitro identified potentially angiogenesis-associated microRNAs as cell-free circulating microRNAs in serum and vitreous samples. And some of them were differentially expressed in neovascular AMD and proliferative diabetic retinopathy and may therefore represent biomarker candidates for retinal neovascular diseases. Very interesting. Yeah? Thank you for your summary. May I ask you, um, where did you get your inspiration from to, to, to do this work? I mean, is there any field in medicine where this is already working? Um, I think microRNA biomarkers are investigated in several fields. We found microRNA biomarkers in the field of cancer, and we had this previous in vitro study where we identified potentially proangiogenic microRNA uh, biomarker candidates. And in the next step, we analyzed these candidates in human patient samples. Uh, Martin, very nice paper, and uh, I was surprised about the beauty of the design. Well, what was more astonishing for me were the results. So as a retina specialist, we love biomarkers. So we have a functional biomarkers such as best corrected visual acuity, molecules like yours, and then last but not least, structural like uh, the OCT. So my question was, in this new novel biomarker, the difference between in the result in the blood sample you created and then the vitro sample. Why I'm telling you this? Because it will be awesome for us as a retina specialist to get some sample of the vitreous, check what cytokines are inside, and then decide the treatment. So I was wondering if you could elaborate a little bit more the difference that you found between the vitreous and the blood in, uh, there was not a statistical significant correlation between the blood and the vitreous. Um, in, in the vitreous and in the serum measurement, there were quite um, differences uh, 
um, between uh, microRNA expression profiles or in the microRNA expression profiles. And um, this was quite interesting. MicroRNA expression or, or microRNA biomarkers in serum samples are especially interesting uh, in the context of uh, molecular biomarkers with the aim to um, identify uh, biomarkers that allow the early detection of, of disease or disease stages and to identify predictive biomarkers that allow to, to anticipate the disease progression for example, from non-proliferative to proliferative disease stages. And predictive biomarkers are a prerequisite for more individualized treatment strategies and the early onset of treatment. And this was interesting regarding the microRNA expression profiles in vitreous samples, as this is a quite different situation than in serum. And altered microRNAs in the vitreous um, could be interesting in the context of um, novel targets for treatment. But this is um, a quite challenging um, issue because each microRNA has uh, several mRNA targets. So there could be the chance to target more complex system by targeting a single microRNA. But on the other hand, there could also be the risk of um, unwanted side effects. So another aspect uh, in this context is to identify target molecules of microRNAs and um, bioinformatic microRNA target search could pave the way to the identification of novel P factors that also could represent novel target molecules. Very nice, uh, uh, very interesting as well. So I have one more comment and question for you, Martin, for your interesting paper. So how do you think, if you can hypothesize, how do you think that will be the future regarding microRNAs? That is to say, are we going to uh, check the sample for our patients in real life and then decide maybe early predictive factor for uh, diabetic retinopathy, neovascular AMD, or... Uh, RBOs. Do you think that will be the future with this microRNA in real life? Um, I think these are the f first data and we, we identified microRNAs that showed associations with um, different diseases. And in the upcoming project or study, we want to conduct a validation study to verify these microRNAs in their function as biomarkers, because it is seen in the literature that relative microRNA expression data vary between different studies. Um, there are several influencing factors such as um, comorbidities or different disease stages or um, current treatment regimens that all may have a, an impact on microRNA expression profiles. So the, the outcome of such studies strongly depends on the composition of, of patient and control groups. So we want to verify our results using newly assembled patient cohorts and, and um, well-matched patient and, and control groups. Yes. 
I mean, um, this is a very uh, complex research and, and uh, we don't understand everything yet. And obviously you're a scientist as well. So you have very in-depth knowledge in this field. What were the main challenges that you encountered during this, this research? Or do you have any tips and tricks for anyone new in the field or pitfalls to avoid? Um, I think an important aspect are data normal normalization strategies and also the composition of patient and control groups. So you need very well-matched um, patient and control groups. And regarding the um, data normalization strategy, the pitfall is or difficulty is to, to find a really homogeneously expressed reference microRNA. And therefore, you could also use the mean expression strategy for data normalization. But these are the most important um, issues regarding relative quantification analysis. Yes, very great to hear, yes. And obviously, in, in your study, you had far more serum samples than, than vitreous samples, uh, because uh, yeah, vitreous samples are harder to get, more precious, and yeah. So on this beautiful session, we also have another paper that is entitled High Impact Action to Reduce the Carbon Dioxide Footprint in Ophthalmic Operation Room, written by Cor Born and collaborators. So we have Dr. Patricia Udaondo here, uh, and we wanted to discuss with her and with the whole panel some thoughts about this paper. So Patricia, could you be so kind as to tell us what did you get from this important paper? Thank you, Matthias. I agree that this is a very important paper. But to be honest, the first time that someone asked me or yourself just comment about this paper, about the impact of the ophthalmic OR, uh, I thought that it was zero important or uninteresting because I didn't realize that what we are doing is really important in terms of sustainability. So then I started to read things and to find out things in relation, and I really became interested in this. And I realized uh, two things. The first is that the impact was greater than I thought, which is, uh, I think, the most important. And secondly, that we already have a responsibility to understand the consequences of our actions. When I read the article by Christina's et al., and I regard the footprint of the German healthcare system, I realized that in general, in terms of health system, in general, not ophthalmology, it is 5.2%, 5.2%, which is a lot of the country's annual emissions. And I think this is really a lot when I thought that it was zero, the impact that we could have in, in the environment. In particular, surgery involves not only the surgical procedure, but also the anesthesia. And both have the carbon dioxide emissions to consider. And then they make a summary about which procedures have an impact that could be reduced. And then I could summary in three points. First, to implement the circular health care and sustainable health care wasting management that is not done in all the ORs around the world to establish the greater health system effectiveness. Second, to reduce the emissions by improving the system effectiveness, as I said, including just eliminating an efficiency and unnecessary practices. Sometimes we do things that are not necessary at all. And third, 
to reduce the unnecessary pharmaceutical use. We are just wasting a lot of material that is not necessary. So the contribution to the global warming due to uterine anesthesia is also important. I know that in eye surgery, we don't do generally uh, the general anesthesia, but sometimes we do it. We should just consider if it's really necessary or not before we plan something related to that. And in summary, I could say that we all have the commitment to the environmental sustainability. And from a retina, we should start to work on this and control of this. And I think it's very important. So, Patti, I, I have a, a, another question for you, an opinion maybe. So going to the real life again. So, for instance, on this paper, I, I, I read that uh, what was more uh, important and the impact was the intraocular lenses at the case of those intraocular lenses. And then there is a, a, a mix and match contribution between what the authorities uh, needs regarding how we uh, waste and recycle and then what the environment needs. So do you think that we have to talk a little bit more, more with authorities, for instance, in order to reuse things that uh, now is forbidden because it is human fluids uh, touch and we have to discharge that? Uh, or we can have something in between saying that the, uh, the packages and the waste and everything could be uh, reduced? Or do you think that won't happen in the near future? Well, I think that what you said is it's just the key point, communication. I have to be uh, honest, as I said, that I had no idea about what we were doing. And probably uh, the authorities don't do it also. So we really need to rely on experts. <laughs> and probably we need to sit down at the three parts to really understand in which little actions we could reduce these emissions and this waste that we are doing without knowing that we are doing something wrong and maybe something simple could be just done to reduce. But I think it's not only a matter of politician authorities or us, it's also the experts on environment and sustainability that could just tell us how to do it to make it simple. So one clear example, uh, as we can say, is for instance, when we extract, for instance, an intraocular lens and then we, uh, we insert another one, Due to regulation, that intraocular lens that we extracted from the eye should be destroyed, right? But these generate a lot of CO2. So do you have a, a, a way in order to fix this in a long or the short period? No, but I will start to think about that. But not also when we exchange uh, intraocular eye oil. It's just the box that contains the eye oil Everything, every maneuver that we are doing in some, I think in the majority of the hospitals, we are not really thinking about the impact of what we're doing. So we really need to think that all the material we are using should be just controlled in a different way. So I agree that I hadn't even thought about that since I read this paper the first time. We also produce a lot of waste just with uh, disposable things we use for procedures. If, if I think of how we do intravitual injections, so we get the patient to go to the OR, it's, it's required by regulations, and then we, we drape him with a sterile drape, 
and uh, we use gloves and we never think about is this really useful is this necessary or and i know in, in other geographic locations people just uh, perform individual injections at a slit lamp and, and certainly they produce less waste but a lot of it is as, as patricia mentioned it is required or governed uh, by, by the regulations that we are required to obey to yeah, see, for sure, this paper opens a door in order to think about this uh, uh, and how we can manage that. Because at home, we know exactly what to recycle and what now in order to decrease the emissions. But inside the OR, for some regulations, as Andrea pointed out very well, for instance, if we have 20 or 25 intravitreal injection, we have to put it in there red bean and that red bean will be incinerated and create a lot of emissions and this won't happen at home with different kind of materials that we can res we can put it in the recycled bin even plastic glass or any kind of uh, material having said that I, I was very surprised about uh, what patricia pointed out very well as well about the 5.2 emissions in our ors so I think it's something that we have to think about it and try to change, but it will be a little bit difficult because as we are uh, talking about uh, human uh, fluids and when uh, human fluids are involved uh, in order to not to dissipate some maybe one disease, it has to be incinerated and from there is where we have the, the contamination. Yeah, well, I think that the good summary is just to really think about it. When you think about it, you try to reduce uh, the impact of your actions, as I said. So I just make as a summary just to an advice to make all the audience to read about this paper. I think it's important because just the little actions we could do will reduce worldwide the impact of the surgical procedures, not only cathode surgery, but as Andreas was saying, intravitreal injections which are really an um, important number annually. So just an advice, read the paper. Congratulations to the authors, because it's something very new, but it's very important. So now, Jonathan, it's over to you to finish the podcast, and thank you for the invitation. Well, thank you so much to our faculty for another interesting episode. And Patty, I have to echo your comments. You know, we have COP28 uh, just finishing up, and there is a big challenge facing all of us and we do need to consider emissions in everything that we do and it's surprising when you look uh, into the detail as this paper has done it's surprising how much waste is created in even just a single operation and of course this isn't restricted to retina or ophthalmology uh, it's across the entire board of medicine and i've spoken to many doctors who are frustrated with the amount of waste uh, that happens during a single operation and yet don't have too much to do it. And I imagine it's also an area that's ripe for innovation because if you can find a way of prioritizing waste so that uh, the, the least hazardous uh, can somehow find its way into uh, the circular economy, modular uh, device building, there's definitely um, a real opportunity there for an innovative uh, researcher slash medic to do something and make a big difference, I think. Um, that's it from us on this episode of Talking Euretina. We're going to take a break for two weeks. We'll see you mid-January for our next episode. Uh, have a great break, however you celebrate. And we'll see you next time on the podcast. I'm Jonathan McRae, and this was Talking Euretina. <laughs>